Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 95, the Buzz Lightyear model of enlightenment to infinity and beyond. Join us for a Geeks of the Roundtable dialogue as we riff on an article entitled Glimpses of Awakening by Shambhala Acharya Judy Leaf. We dive right into some of the most difficult and hairy questions regarding enlightenment. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. All right, we are back with another episode today and we're doing something a little special. We're actually streaming live right now, so we're going to be doing this more often. I don't even know if this is going to air or when it will air. But uh, we're trying this and we're really geeking out on the video. So you can find us at live.buddhistgeeks.com. And uh, we'll also have a schedule there so you can see when we're going to stream live. And we're also on a Twitter account and we'll tweet when we're going live or when we're going to have a guest. So twitter.com slash buddhistgeeks. So today we're bringing back a little thing that we like to do. And it goes a little something like this. Geeks of the Round Table. <laughs> Geeks of the Round Table. <laughs> I love this music. This is great. My favorite music. Geeks it's epic. I think my voice is pretty epic, don't you? That's, round That's not you. It's not. Geeks <laughs> of the Round Table. It just keeps going. Forever. <laughs> We're going to have a fade out here. There it goes. Oh, <laughs> nice. It's like a circle. It continues. Okay. It's a Geeks of the Round Table, as you heard. And, uh... As always, I have my homie, Vince Horn here. Hey guys. Yes, I'm here along with Ryan and a couple other geeks around the round table. Here in the studio with us today, we have Duff McDuffie, who's been a guest on all of our round table discussions. So thank you, Duff, for being here. Glad to be here. Excited about the topic today. And also joining us over the phone is Mike Latora, who's a Zen priest, and he teaches at the Las Cruces Zen Center. So thank you, Mike, for joining us. You're welcome. Yeah. Okay, and today, just to set a little context for the conversation, as we've been doing on these Geeks of the Roundtable segments, we're going to be having a, a discussion and a dialogue about a particular written piece of work that we found interesting. And today, we're going to be discussing an article out of the May Shambhala Sun issue, which was entitled Glimpses of Awakening, and it's by Shambhala Acharya Judy Leaf. So, in case you're interested, go check out shambhalasun.com, go into their archives and find it you want to check it out later on. But today we'll just be assuming that this conversation will make sense to those of you who haven't read it, because we'll be trying to tackle some ideas and some points that are relevant to all Buddhist practitioners, hopefully. So just to kick it off, I wanted to read a small segment from this article, which I think is pretty important. It starts off, awakening is the central goal of the Buddhist tradition. Buddha Dharma is all about awakening or enlightenment. Buddha means awake, and the Buddha is said to be the enlightened one. But what does that mean? What exactly is the goal, and where do we start? So she kicks the article off asking some great questions, and I'm sure each of us probably has some other great questions. So let's just kick it off, open it up for any comments or questions about the article, and we can just go from there. Yeah, well, I'll kick it off. I found this article really important in terms of it's discussing one of the 
central issues of Buddhist practice, which is what exactly is enlightenment or awakening. And there were certain ideas that I really liked from it. One of them is this idea of the terra incognita. In old maps, you had these areas on the map. They would either say terra incognita or there be dragons. Mm-hmm. Um, just these areas of physical geography that we didn't know what was there. And so we tend to project all these things onto those areas. Like, like dragons. Like dragons. Like our fantasies, our wishes, our gold is there. The fountain of youth is there. And similarly, we tend to do that with concepts of enlightenment or awakening that we project all of our fantasies onto this. And Daniel Ingram's addressed that to some extent in some of his articles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I found that really interesting as well. I'm wondering, Mike, since you're also uh, familiar with Daniel Ingram's work, what you were thinking on this topic. The enlightenment idea is very attractive. And uh, as Judy pointed out, and as Duff has mentioned, people tend to project onto it what they would like to see there. And it's very often in the mode of ever-improving, pleasant, happy life without any problems, (laughs) which is quite unrealistic and, and doesn't even correspond to what the actual scriptural descriptions from the Buddhist suttas on up through the commentary say, but it's a kind of popular New Age version of every day in every way, better and better. <laughs> so, yeah, people are kind of distressed when they find out that actually confronting reality means seeing a lot of things that are not pleasant, going through literally an ordeal of transformation. Mm, that's mm-hmm. a great point. I'm thinking to Daniel Ingram's work because he, he writes and talks about this so much that really, if you look at concentration versus insight, concentration is the path towards greater and greater happiness and subtlety and experiences of bliss and formless expanse. And the insight really is a path of, at times, terror and fear and misery (laughs) and death. It's not always pleasant. It's actually a transformation, a process of dying and being reborn. And there is a result to that, which is great, and that's enlightenment, but it's not really a, a linear line towards greater and greater happiness, and even enlightenment itself can't be described that way from, from what I understand. So what Vince was saying about the difference between the insight stages and the concentration states, even the concentration states are not what we think they are. <laughs> and I mean, many people imagine enlightenment to be full of some emotion, like joy or something like that. And the concentration states aren't necessarily full of those kinds of emotions. They are very different, very subtle. Uh, And even that is not necessarily awakening or awakening out of suffering, at least. I mean, the main thing I was interested in in this article, which I don't see happening much, is that Judy was really taking on a lot of the notions we have about awakening, Mm -hmm. that it's about happiness or it's about wisdom or it's about, you know, having to be a certain gender or a certain class or a certain Mm. background or being extremely virtuous or kind or feeling a lot of love or kindness. Mm-hmm. And these are all ideas about awakening or enlightenment, we should say, that are super common. I'm amazed at how common and prevalent those things are. And, and the thing I always wonder about, and the thing she's challenging here is, well, how could you ever expect to get enlightened? 
if you think it's all of those things or even some combination of those things. Mm. Is it possible to be always loving? Is it possible to be always virtuous? Is it possible to be mm. happy all the time emotionally? Mm-hmm. You know, it just seems like it really isn't. And so at some level, people must know that and they must go, wow, it's not possible to wake up. And that's the very thing she says in here is that the danger of not talking about enlightenment and not claiming that it's possible and not bringing it back down to earth is that people start to believe it's not even possible. That's a very good point. I think the biggest barrier to coming to an accurate relation or understanding with reality is the misconception about what that accurate assessment or awakening would be. If your concept of awakening is that you're happy all the time, that you never get angry, that Mm -hmm. you have a perfect moral status, then you'll always be looking in the wrong place. Yeah, for sure. And again, I'll hearken back to Daniel Ingram because I think he's the most, one of the most sane Buddhist voices in this regard. And Judy certainly seems to be saying some of the same stuff, but he does it, I think, in a more precise and technical way. And that's to point out that, in fact, there are all these different models we can have about enlightenment. And when we identify those models, like say there's the virtue model that enlightenment has to do with virtue, or there's the bliss model has to do with experiencing some sort of bliss or happiness or rebirth models about being enlightened means you're not reborn anymore or any number of these things. And that he kind of advocates a model, uh, which he calls the non-duality models, which basically claim that enlightenment, the only thing it is, is the dissolution of some reference point or center point of object and subject. And that Full enlightenment is the complete dissolution of that, the, where duality basically stops. And that there's no benefits or gains necessarily in our emotional life, in our ethical life, that we can necessarily impute from that, though there tend to be some interesting relationships. Mm-hmm. So I was just throw that out there and see what people have to say about that. Pretty yeah. radical in some ways. Yeah, it is pretty radical in some ways. Yeah, I can't speak for everybody's experience of awakening, obviously. But I have found that the more I practice, the kinder I am just in general, but it's a different kind of kindness, I suppose. Like, for instance, a fierce anger might come through as well, which is not something that most people consider kindness. I feel like that is more common now than it it was on earlier stages of my own path. I'd also say that, you know, assuming that that is the correct model of enlightenment or the one that we should advocate, I still would advocate for other things then, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like virtue and like ethics. And, and that would bring it more into the realm of philosophy and asking, you know, what is good? And I think that's maybe why that gets all lumped together because there are many good things to develop. One of them is complete enlightenment or awakening. One of them is being nice to people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think this is a very good way to put it because you do become kinder, but not necessarily 100% kind. And sometimes a little bit of strategically applied righteous anger can help (laughs) Mm -hmm. someone more than just patting them on top of the head. One of the things that Dan Ingram said in his Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, where he describes the three trainings, morality, concentration, and wisdom, Mm -hmm. is that morality is the first and the last training. You're always working on that. Yeah, and and by saying it's the last training, that kind of implies that there really isn't an end to it, that there it's possible to work on that indefinitely. Yeah, that seems like a really good distinction, that there's some things on the path that you can work on indefinitely, and there's other things that actually come to an end. And 
when you frame enlightenment as what was the terminology you the used? Non, non-duality. The non-duality model. model, then that model can actually come to an end where right. you have that realization. And like Judy was mentioning in this article, that true accomplishment does not fade. In right. other words, that there are permanent shifts that happen and there's right. an ultimate permanent shift that can happen in that kind of way of looking at things. But that permanent shift is not being kind in every moment to every person. Right, right, right. I wonder if I could just bring in a few live streamer comments. I don't know who this person is again. I, I forget, but the, there's CES 3001. Mm-hmm. They say, uh, Judas says, we realize how thin the membrane is that separates us from the reality awakening. But how does that reconcile the notion that it takes in the Tibetan tradition, three incalculable eons to become a Buddha? So one distinction I've heard made is the distinction between enlightenment and Buddhahood. And this is a clear distinction made in many mm-hmm. of the traditions the, the Buddha really, he had perfected all these different qualities, these perfections, the paramis, and that he took all these incalculable eons right. to do so. And that, that that's different than ending duality in one's experience. That just strikes me as a bunch of mythology, personally. Like, come on, who can actually careful perfect? Careful enough, careful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just to critique that a little bit, it sounds just like historical myth that... I mean, he may have been the greatest teacher of all time. Even so, there's got to be something wrong with him, you know, if <laughs> he's human. Oh, yeah. Well, the interesting thing, the two sides to those, you know, the boomy model is that you have like what things are being perfected, like virtues. Yes. Then you have what they'll tie to that, though, is things about your realization. So like what you haven't realized in duality yet, like there's still duality happening. So that to me gets mixed in there. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I just kind of often with the boomies, that's what gets focused on is like those virtues. Right. So... It's just out there. I'm not really making a statement about it. <laughs> yeah, and with respect to the use of hyperbole in incomparable eons and, you know, <laughs> eons or universes as numberless as the grains of sand in the Ganges kind of thing, I categorize this all as a kind of artful way of pointing at something that's supposed to blow your mind. It's sort of the buzz light ear to infinity and beyond approach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah you know sense. something else? This is just a side kind of geeky note related to this, but I'm in my Yamaka class at Naropa right now. Yeah. And uh, Phil, he's just wonderful at pointing out how things developed historically, which are that's often left out of the traditions themselves. They don't really see how mm. things actually have happened from a, that perspective. And going to the second turning teachings, when you read sutras from the first turning and second turning, all of a sudden they become insanely flowery with all of this stuff in there. So first off, in the sutras, <laughs> like uh, from the first turning, it just gets started. It's like the Buddha sat down and he said, here's what's the deal. You know, you're doing this, don't do that, do that. And then the next one, it takes him like three pages to say like, the Buddha sat down under, you know, this tree that was made out of diamonds and everybody <laughs> heard him throughout the whole world and the earth shook and everything like that. So it's an interesting development. That at one time, yeah, not so much of that, you know, uh, to that extent or exaggeration, if you want to call it exaggeration, right. and it entered in at a certain period of time. Well, this is important as a topic in related to the article in terms of how much does this kind of mythology or this exaggerated language facilitate awakening, or how much does it actually make it an ideal that's unattainable? Right. Um, that's why I reacted to it just a moment ago in terms right. of saying it's just myth. Because my personal experience with that kind of exaggerated uh, language is that it puts it in the realm of gods, not of humans, to attain, or the realm of Buddhas, 
And on the other hand, there's these really practical techniques like Vipassana and, and Shamatha and that actually train the mind to advance through these stages and, and develop. I want to encourage people to do more of that than just worship some guy who lived several thousand years ago. We have plenty of that in Christianity as it is. And there's always that fallback. I find it just, it's just interesting. I'm on your side, Duff, really. I mean, I, I kind of <laughs> lean that way. But it's so, it's something kind of paradoxical because it, it is like this, like, oh, it's some, like almost a God, right? Mm-hmm. And it's going to take forever and it's not me. Yeah. But then they'll be, but oh, anybody can attain enlightenment. You know, there's that Buddhist thing about anybody can attain it. So they, they kind of lean back on that little fact of Buddhism, but it's not really, to me, embraced or like yeah. as much as what it's actually taught to be. Well, you know, something that's, that I found interesting is that though Judy really advocated for more down-to-earth model for enlightenment, she didn't go so far as to say, well, actually, the reason I'm doing this is because, in fact, I'm enlightened. That yeah, I've, right. I've, I've achieved yeah. this myself. She didn't take that next step, I noticed. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I found that, that really interesting. What were you thinking about that, um, Mike? I think it's unfortunate that she was not willing to take that step. Although I can understand, as a, an awakened Zen teacher, why this is a problem, because I was very reluctant to confess this to my students after my own awakening, because, well, the first two people I told this to in personal conversations are no longer students there. And they had lots of misconceptions, including the more grandiose and fabulous misconceptions that we've been referring to about what constitutes enlightenment. You know, you can never make mistakes, you can't have ordinary human desires and so forth. Mm -hmm. And, of course, within Zen, I had to say that, contrary to what you might think, this is not, at least at my stage, the final attainment. I've got a ways to go, but nevertheless, I'm at a stage where I can do a lot for you because I'm no longer on that other side of the barrier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another thing that I haven't seen many people discuss either is where they think they're at on the path. Mm-hmm. That's what we've done a fair amount, at least you and me personally, Vince and mm-hmm. Ryan. But it's pretty rare for people to say, you know, I think I've attained stream entry or right. something like that. Or I think I've had, you know, yeah. initial breakthrough or Ken show or, yeah, you know, or what does that, that mean, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of another tradition's models. And exactly. I'm, pre- I'm pretty cranky about that right now when I hear people, <laughs> like almost every Dharma practitioner I run to has that background to them. Like everything they say is filtered through this like not talking about any attainments or like attainment it's not even possible, but even simple levels of practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just so prevalent. Hey, I want to integrate a Hokai yeah, yeah. statement. Oh, great. So Hokai says, is there necessarily a tension between poetic inspiration and devotional exuberance and seeing your sensations flow in a simple, precise fashion? Hmm. Oh, Hokai. Hokai <laughs> bringing it. So is there a tension between poetic expressions, devotional exuberance, and then simply watching sensations Blow by. <laughs> uh, I would guess so. I, I, I mean, think there is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, certainly in the Zen tradition, right? There's a lot of that tension. Yeah. Zen, in its radical purity, is very grounded. And I'm talking here about the ground of being and everything, all experiences, the most grand to the most awful or mundane, are simply observed in the category of experience. Mm-hmm. So while some individuals might go down a more poetic and flowery 
roots of depiction and um, a kind of aesthetic appreciation of how we can engage the human emotions. That ground, from the Zen perspective, that stuff is all strictly optional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And one, again, in, in this article, there is a, a lot of reference to the contention that enlightenment's always available, that it's always present. Uh, it's something that you uh, wake up to and then you forget and wake up to and forget and eventually you kind of remember it. But it's somehow it's always there. And uh, I've always wondered if that's a poetic thing that only people who've actually actually made some progress with regards to awakening can say. Because mm-hmm. honestly, I've had a lot of state experiences, but really the big shifts in my practice have revealed something that really wasn't there before. Though it seems so normal after it's been revealed that it seems like it might have been there all along. Sort of like when someone's sick, while they're sick, they're like, oh, this sucks. And then they get better. And it's hard to remember even a couple days afterwards, what was it like to be sick? Mm -hmm. But it's not because they've always been healthy. It's simply because they're healthy now. And so I actually wonder about that line of thinking and, and whether it's actually helpful. And one way, I guess it can inspire people to think that it's very enlightenment is close and it is possible, which I totally agree with. But on the other hand, it seems to give some weird misconception that everyone's walking around enlightened already, which definitely, from my perspective, does not seem to be the case. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense to me in terms of Joseph Campbell's monomyth, or what's usually called the hero's journey, in that the stages of insight follow the path of the hero's journey and that they take some amount of time in space and time. And even though there may be some, yeah, the experience is like, oh yeah, it's always present and I keep forgetting. Mm -hmm. There's still some amount of time that one goes through to actually realize that insight or those various insights in turn. Mm -hmm. I have a paradoxical sense that both perspectives are true because from the perspective of awakening, it's totally obvious that this was always available, and it's always, in a sense, it's always the case, but you simply have failed to recognize it before. Mm-hmm. But that tends to be a very theoretical thing to someone who has not had the experience, and I use the term experience here very loosely, since it's actually, mm-hmm. I believe, an event, a transformation, with many possible associated experiences from a limited set of possibilities, but people go through different associated experiences, so you can't mm-hmm. limit it to a very mm-hmm. small number, like everyone always has X, right. well, some people have Y. And then, in terms of advice for practice, the real practical stuff at the level of sit down, follow your breath kind of things, that's not always helpful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This isn't to knock Zen, but when you, <laughs> but when you were just talking there, I, I remembered a student in my one of my classes at Naropa, and he he admitted when I was giving a presentation on these stages of insight, he admitted he said, you know, actually, for years I just sat uh, doing Soto Zen, and I just sat there trying to be a Buddha, and then I went to a month long Shambhala retreat, and they taught the stages of Shamatha, and suddenly I made progress through these stages, wow. and I was thinking, wow these stages are so helpful. I'm so glad that I learned about stages because before I, I really don't think I was getting anywhere. I think I was just sitting there. And wow. mm-hmm. there does seem to be a tension between this idea that 
there's really nothing to do on the one hand. And then on the other hand, that there is in fact something to do or there's something that needs to happen. Rather, there's that event you're talking about with the associated experiences. The conditions need to be created for some sort of event to take place and some sort of transformation to occur. And that it does seem to happen more often when people have a clear sense of what they're looking for, what they should be doing, (laughs) rather than just sitting, doing nothing. You may consider that a knock on Zen, but I consider that to be something that is a true deficit in a lot of Zen teaching, is that Mm. it could be too easily faked or from my perspective, it's a parody of what the real practice is, but the ordinary person coming to Zen wouldn't know that because they read or are told, oh, you just sit, and that's all. And this awakening, don't talk about that. Anything that you may experience, you should not inquire into, just let it go, and that locks you into the the wheel. You just can't get off that if that is your approach. You won't make any progress, and you'll develop more and more false concepts along the way. For example, I have had difficulty with a couple of Zen students at explaining that when I use the word wisdom, I'm using this in a very technical sense Mm. about inquiring into the true nature of experience and the three characteristics. And they want to think of wisdom as something more in the line of practical wisdom or moral wisdom. Oh, I would be wise if I went out and fed all the poor. No, you would be virtuous if you did that. That's not actually a wisdom action. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.